0: I want to uh, focus on Genesis 1 and 2 and make some bridge to 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's where I'm going. And the image of God, which is a huge metaphor, reality, will be broken out in different parts throughout the next couple of months, three months. And uh, I want to focus on just one aspect of that which is communion with God. It's been said that if we have witnessed the death of God in the 20th century, and in the West we have, we are witnessing now the death of man in the 21st century. That's something that James Houston said recently, having lived through most of the 20th century himself. Who am I? The question of our personal identity is something that each of us at some point, most of us at some point growing up, especially, uh, we ask this personal question. We wonder who we are. Are we who people say we are? Am I who my parents say I am? personal question that's very, very important. It's also a cultural question and a cultural quest that uh, we especially, what I call the West, we're talking about our culture. This question of what is a human being or what is a woman, what is a man is uh, really up for grabs in terms, especially, I'm thinking of medical advances that are being made with uh, uh, gene editing and so on. We will be seeing some very different things in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Different claims being made. But in the West, we have basically flattened what a human is down into something that we can parse out, analyze into different ingredients. But on the other side of this, in our culture, we are not satisfied with that. With a purely scientific view of what a human being is. The problem is, and the reality is, that with no God on the horizon, We are lost in the cosmos. We have no transcendent reference point. And so we're lost at sea. So, in uh, Genesis 1 and 2, we are given in the scripture an account of human identity. Now, Genesis 1 uh, and 2 are best read as the original recipients would read it. We have no right to come and impose our particular way of reading this text on the text. This is an extremely important point. I was trained in science, in physics. I loved physics, loved mathematics. I learned to think in terms of proofs and equations uh, until... Uh, and then graduated from that with a a bachelor's degree. So I understand and love the scientific approach. But it doesn't cover everything. And uh, we have no right to impose our scientific reading upon Genesis 1 and 2. Why? Because we are distorting the text. So, how do we read it? We read it as best we can the way an ancient Near Eastern would read it. We know how to do this. Now, every person knows how to do this because every person has a smartphone. And you can do that now. It's not just for experts who study Hebrew and so on and Akkadian. So, this is temple language and king language. Every ancient Near Eastern person would see and know that this, Genesis 1 and 2, is a description of the king who is building his temple. And uh, so the last thing a king does before the temple is dedicated in the ancient Near East is to put the image of the god in the temple. And that's exactly what happens here. The living God, the one and only true and living God, the creator of all, has built his temple, the heavens and the earth. He says in Isaiah 66, verse 1, heaven is my throne. That's what's up there. And we know how far that goes now. And earth is my footstool. So creation the universe is God's temple. He sits on the throne. And the earth is his footstool. That covers everything. And so he puts the image on day six into the temple. Let us make uh, humans in our image. He says in Genesis 1, verse 26 and so as i turn there you can scroll there let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and that that means over all creation And God created Adam, or humankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to him. You can see the link to Psalm 24 that we sang. So just a couple of things here. To be in the image of God primarily means to resemble God and to represent God. We resemble God in, in chapter 1 because we are given the same kind of task to do as God himself did in his image. We are to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and care for it. <clears throat> the word "subdue" is a bad translation. It means to care to care for the earth, to care for creation. Rule over the fish of the sea, etc. God is the king. He appoints us as regents under his rule to express the same kind of care. That's the second thing we represent God. So we resemble God in that we have, for example, um, one of the Psalms, I believe it's Psalm 115, says, um, He who made the ear, does he not hear? He who made the eye, does he not see? Uh, And we stand upright, and God is upright. We stand uh, so that we face, we face and look up. That distinguishes us. And so, uh, in Genesis 2, just to finish this off, we have uh, another angle on creation. Chapter 1 is the cosmic angle. Chapter 2 is the up-close and personal angle. We need more than one angle, just as the same way. We need more than one gospel to see all there is about Christ. We have four gospels. Two creation uh, angles here. He creates the man and puts him in a garden. And the garden is to be, he's there in order, verse 15 of chapter 2, then Yahweh God took the man and put him, or the overtones there are He's to be at rest there into the Garden of Delight or the Garden of Eden to serve and to keep, to serve and to guard, actually. Those two verbs are the same verbs that are used of the Levitical priesthood later on in the same uh, book, the book, the one five-fold book we call the Torah or the Pentateuch. Numbers 3, verse 8, if you're interested, those same two verbs are used. So we have a priestly work. We are priests of creation. What is a priest? A priest is a bridge representing God to creation and creation to God. And so, priests dwell in the presence of God in the tabernacle, in the temple. And so our place in the image of God is to be dwelling in sacred space, in his creation. In order to uh, dwell in his presence and also to care for and express God's love for creation. Now others who are speaking in this series will bring out different aspects of different parts. I'm just trying to lay uh, a basic foundation here. But this is very important for human identity. Every person has been created to dwell in the love of God, to abide there with God abiding with us, us abiding, living, dwelling at rest in the presence of God no matter how fast you're going through the day, you can still dwell inside in the presence of God. We can learn to do this. We have a lifetime to learn, whatever God gives us. Dwelling in the love of God means living, uh, receiving, freely receiving the love of God and then freely giving the love of God. Because love is not static, it must express itself. So, uh, our human identity. That is our contribution to the cultural conversation that we must be involved in, in this country, whatever country we go to. This is our, uh, this is our uh, contribution to the quest. That is very much upon us now in our culture. Well, uh, we come to uh, what I call the bent image and distorted desires. We know that the image of God is uh, never eradicated in any person, no matter how uh, how far gone either uh, criminally or medically the image of god is there we are in the image of god but we know from the story that we have here this meta narrative by which we live that the image is bent Perhaps most of us in this room know what this is like because we have been there. We bear the image, but we're bent away from God. We're turned away. And uh, we're turned away from uh, this communion with God, which is our everything. Jeremiah 2 is the middle of the text that I'd like to go to before we go to 2 Corinthians. But Jeremiah 2 changes the metaphor slightly but means the same. Metaphors are wonderful and we're given a lifetime to ponder them and to live them out. But Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah lived at a time of great shift because the temple was about, God's temple in Jerusalem was about to be destroyed by those bad Babylonians. And what's that all about? He lived through that. He lived through the trauma of that, of an invading force, and the destruction, the laying waste, the bodies lying about, And the book of Lamentations is a brilliant poem about that. What it's like to walk through the rubble of the ruins. Jeremiah lived through that. Before this happened, he says in Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, verse 12, speaking about the people of God who had failed to to live in his presence. Be appalled, O heavens, at this and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Israel depended on rainfall from above, they had no Nile, so they would dig into the limestone Uh, formations wells and plaster them but they would inevitably crack as as the limestone I understand tends to do and so the cisterns that they were hewing out didn't hold water but they kept doing it anyway and there's a fountain of living water right there ever flowing stream and they're hewing cisterns over here bent away from God trying to Uh, fill up the void, fill up the thirst, but it doesn't work. That's called idolatry. And so there's this longing that we have. No one in our last century, at least popularly known, has written better about this than C.S. Lewis as he writes about the experience of intense longing. Zensucht in German. The longing for a, for a uh, something you've never experienced yet, but you have a longing for it. <laughs> something you've never seen in this world, but you long for it. Also, uh, this, this is uh, where the roots of addiction come from. Bent away from the source of deep satisfaction, we seek out other substitutes. Created to be uh, dwelling in the presence of God in the midst of creation, we go to creation, bent away from God to find in creation uh, a substitute to, to fill this empty void. and we begin wearing relational veils. uh, Created to be in relationship with the living God, a living, organic relationship with God uh, and with one another. Turned away from God, we, we distance ourselves from others as well, or we experience the distance. The difference is sometimes a threat, sometimes a maddening confusion. And so uh, we, we wear veils, some call them masks, whatever you want to do. We've all done this and still do it. Uh, they're very interesting looking. But uh, we, we have to hide. Um, and we take on different false identities and so on. Our desires are distorted, disordered. I want to come to this verse now. Uh, written to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 3.18, one of two letters, well, actually four letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We have two of them. Two of them we don't. Uh, and the Corinthian culture is very much Western culture. It's very much Calgary, very much Vancouver, very much uh, upwardly mobile, uh, status-seeking. In Corinth, there were winners and losers. There were, there were uh, people wanting to climb uh, the social ladder of honor and there were lots of casualties. It was a port city, etc. So image and status were things that were valued, and so when a person became a Jesus follower, uh, ideally, supposed to get in touch with Jesus as a servant, not as the, as the one who's you know, snapping orders around and climbing the ladder. Jesus was downwardly mobile, and uh, also uh, get real instead of, you know, judging by appearances. Well, the Corinthians were still on the way to becoming truly Christ-like, and so Paul writes First and Second Corinthians. And what he does in these two books is he has one word for them, and it's a one word for our generation, for our culture, And that's the word of the cross. If you go through 1 Corinthians, you see the cross is right at the front. And the cross uh, is a very shameful thing. It's very dishonorable. Uh, In first century culture still today, uh, except when we make it into jewelry. But the cross speaks of the condescension Of Jesus. So I call this the unbending word of the cross. The word of the cross uh, defies uh, alteration, but it also unbends us. It turns us back to the Father. As Jesus himself said, Jesus is the true image, by the way, the true image of God. Remember he said the Son loves the Father and the Father loves the Son? Well, uh, we are privileged to participate in that love by the Holy Spirit. The love of the Father is now something that we have been ushered into. And so we come then to the unveiled face, beholding. And uh, this verse, most of the verse here, I think it's the whole verse, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being changed into the same image from glory to glory, being transformed. What I want you to notice here is um, the third word, but we all. In the ancient Near East, there was only one person in any particular culture who was in the image of God, and that was the king over that city or over that culture. Only the king was in the image of God. All the rest of the subjects of the kingdom were slaves to the king because they were slaves to the God of the kingdom. In the ancient Near East, in every culture, human beings exist to meet the needs of the gods. Only in Genesis 1 is it said that every person is in the image of God. That was a radical, never before heard statement. Every person is in the image of God, not just the king. Notice in this verse, the context is Moses had an unveiled face when he went into the tent to see the Lord. Only Moses, but now we all with unveiled face have the privilege of beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. The Lord is Jesus In the midst of uh, a life, all of us have a life. If we don't, we should get one. Uh, (laughs) Literally, that's John the Baptist's message get a life. The life that is in Jesus Christ. This is for those of you here this morning who, who have this longing to uh, behold Jesus. Is it possible to do this? Yes, it is. One, just, just two things to close here. Two simple ways that we can cultivate a heart that beholds Jesus. One, one, is to offer short prayers during the day. Lord, I seek your face. Psalm 105, verse 4. The second thing is to expose yourself regularly to the Gospel of John and listen to Jesus' invitations. Listen to them. Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the rest. Remember Genesis 2 in the garden? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Thirsty, longing, thirsty. Come to me and drink. How do you do that? You open up your mouth. You unveil your face so that you speak to Jesus if you've never spoken to Jesus yet today do so it's just you and him very personal and say Lord I want to see you Just I just want to see you and take his word with you through the day. Take that one promise. Memorize it. Live with it for a week, a month, a year. Let's pray. Lord, you have said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. You are mine. We were made for this. We were made to increasingly be changed by your glory. So I pray, have your way in us. Amen.